Open Source is sponsored by listeners like you. Pitch in to keep the world's first podcast going strong. 15 years and counting. Find us at patreon.com slash radio open source. And thank you. I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source. Memorial Day is paired with the 4th of July in American sentiment, the loss of patriot lives linked to the new birth of freedom. The old farmer's adage in New England was, get your peas planted by Decoration Day, as the May holiday used to be known, and you'll have fresh peas on the table for the 4th. So we honor the memories of all our war dead this long Memorial Day weekend. And in particular this hour, we ask some war survivors to talk back to some of those memories in dissent as they choose to. In partnership with the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, we're drawing on a sparkling collection of short war memoirs from 15 soldiers who served in what they remember now as misguided or misbegotten American wars in two decades since 9-11. Our guests went to Iraq or Afghanistan, some to both wars, enlisted and officer class, black and white, bitter and proud. Paths to Dissent is the title of the paperback from Metropolitan Books. Andrew Basevich, who co-edited it, will have a comment on our conversations. Eric Edstrom gets us started from Stoughton, Massachusetts. He was in one of the first West Point classes that entered just after 9-11. None of the cadets more up for the chase than he. He's with us on a Zoom call from JFK Airport in New York. You write, Eric Edstrom, that you couldn't help getting excited at the prospect of shooting, bombing, and invading. It was presented as a borderline pornographic affair, you wrote. Then came your assignment to Afghanistan. Describe that coming awake. The background and sort of the genesis of my desire to join the military, I think is given almost standard issue to especially sort of young boys. When you think about public service, it's often not thinking of a career as a teacher or a social worker. The sort of idea that comes into your mind is if you want to serve the public, serve in the military. And that was the level of sophistication, I think, that I attended the academy with, at least when I first joined. I had a desire to develop this notion of character and some of these lofty virtues that are often associated with and, and marketed to young children in America. And I also, like many Americans, I did not have a single dollar to attend university. And so when I weighed all these factors in my mind at the age of 16 and 17, when I began the application process, before I was even old enough to watch an R-rated movie about military violence, I was effectively signing up to partake in military violence without even fully realizing or understanding the depth of what that meant. There's almost like a liminal threshold or portal that you sort of walk through where on one side of the portal, you are person A, and on the other side of the portal, you are person B. And so I um, experienced that transition a couple times from child to West Point cadet, from West Point cadet to junior officer, and from junior officer to combat veteran. You, as an Army platoon leader, 
would lose 25% of your guys before it was over. You write that the war on terror stripped you of your soul. Take us into that dark place of what you actually experienced in Afghanistan. It was a gut-wrenching experience. I spent effectively five years training for the moment of combat between four years of West Point, going to ranger school and the rest. And within the first week that I was doing missions, I had four of my soldiers get blown up in a truck. And that was just the beginning. It continued month after month where we were recording the bloodiest month in the Afghan war and the areas that I was patrolling specifically in Kandahar and in the specific districts that I was in, they were the worst in the country. And we were racking up lots of deaths. You could regularly step out of the dining hall tent or something and hear a distant explosion, some frantic radio chatter from a nearby company outpost, and then learn that three guys were killed and four were injured. And this would sort of just happen on a regular basis. So it was a experience that um, really pushed me into a dark and depressed state. Hmm. There isn't much else that you can do other than focus microscopically on each individual patrol. And what the military would try to do is sort of push out of focus the larger questions about why we are doing these patrols to begin with. And that was a nagging sense that bothered me throughout that deployment. At some point, you realized that you had never heard an American leader in Afghanistan say, if we were in their shoes, how would we see the American occupation? What brought that question to the surface? Those questions first surfaced in my mind when I first realized that the U.S. military did not treat Afghan people like people. They were a group distinct and separate and treated with less respect. And there were a myriad of individual examples from the Arkansas National Guard shooting a bus full of passengers, which should have been a court-martial sort of offense, but was swept under the rug. Mm. As it is so often done in combat, it is you know, trust the intentions of the soldiers and give short shrift to the actual lived experiences of the people who are the victims of these incidents. And I saw that repeatedly. We would not consult Afghan people about their opinion. We would patrol in a manner that was very aggressive, that was completely contrary to then-President Hamid Karzai's 12 points that he put out. And so I saw on a systematic basis, you know, if I put myself in their shoes, I would never want to cooperate with the U.S. What was it that we were doing that was particularly endearing? We are asking them to cooperate with our invasion of their country during our war. When dozens of wedding parties or funeral parties being struck by drones, you could see right. that whatever goodwill might have been achieved was going to dissipate. 
And I sort of knew that there was no group of people that would put up with this, and I found it morally disgusting. Memorial Day is always a bittersweet day of memory. Where will your head be at? What will you be thinking? I have multiple types of feelings. One is respect for the nameless and long line of people who have served the military and done their country's bidding. However, couched in that is also a bit of bitterness that the causes that these soldiers have been asked to participate in did not actually have anything to do with the national security of the people of the United States. And it's often conflated that military service equals protection for Americans at home. This is not always the case, and it never has been. There is no betrayal more intimate than being sent to kill or die for nothing by your own countrymen. We don't even ask the question of whether the people we're allegedly trying to help want us there. And it's very difficult to say that we're saving and helping these people when you end up killing 109-11s worth of civilians. Eric, you searched your soul before you went to West Point, and you wondered out loud, how can I serve my country? And you decided it was a military career. In Afghanistan, it occurred to you, your first moral obligation was to dissent. How long did you have to live with that understanding? And how did other men you were with deal with it. Did you talk about it? I did. I even talked about it sort of during deployment, and I was threatened by my commander. He tried to destroy my career in the military, said I didn't deserve to wear the uniform for having these thoughts and opinions that I voiced. And um, he threatened to write the commander of the honor guard, which was the next unit to which I was going to be stationed as my final unit because I had turned down other opportunities since I had been selected for the the Special Forces or the Green Berets. That was my original plan. And after having gone to Afghanistan, wanted to have nothing to do with more deployments in this manner, whether that's in one uniform or another, you know, irrespective of the hat you wear on your head, I didn't want to do it. So it was his sort of last act as my commander that he was threatening me for um, my own perspective. And... Um, it's not unusual. When you challenge the thing that has power and you say that, that something is wrong, it's common for backlash in the military. What did your military mates in Afghanistan feel? Many soldiers and many officers will say that it wasn't a good war or that it wasn't done well. Those are questions mm -hmm. around execution. Very few of them will say it's morally repugnant or illegal, or a form of state terrorism. That if you asked, if you took a drone from a foreign nation and it bombed a wedding party in New York or Arkansas, that would uncontroversially be called terrorism. And yet the same exact action used in a different country by US forces is as if by magic called counterterrorism. Any other further thoughts on Memorial Day itself? My message is that Soldiers don't need 10% mattress sale discounts this Memorial Day. They don't need a pat on the back. They don't need a free beer. What veterans need is an American populace that's willing to ask why and have a debate rather than just 
stoically like farm animals pat them on the back and send them to war year after year. Mm. That being a citizen uh, and civic engagement is not easy. And both American citizens and the American Congress have evaded their responsibility to face down some of those questions. And it is to the veterans' detriment. So please get involved, have the debates. If you don't believe in what our military is doing, don't say thank you for your service, protest. Elect other people or run for office yourself. Eric Edstrom, you face your responsibilities in war and in dissent. It's a privilege to hear you. It's a privilege to be a part of your show. Thank you for having me. Coming up, the code phrase, moral injury, and its implied link to suicide. This is open source. Walking along paths of dissent in the title of a collective memoir of American soldiers who served in the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. And here come six of them we met this week. Leading off is Jonathan Hutto, who grew up in Atlanta, went to Howard University in D.C., and enlisted in the U.S. Navy in 2004. What Memorial Day means to me in terms of celebrating those who gave the ultimate sacrifice for this country, I believe that those lives should be memorialized in every part of our country. All people should be grounded in the wars that this country has fought, but most importantly, the sacrifices that the working class has made uh, in these wars. And I, I stress the working class because I do come from that perspective, uh, that those who fight the wars, those who suffer and give their lives, uh, is the class of people who are not connected to the policies and why these wars are waged. You write about a very personal and acute experience of racism in the U.S. Navy. And you were also part of a fascinating process, an appeal for redress, which made a kind of history. Tell us that story. Oh, yeah, no question. I uh, So I enlisted early January, well, middle part of January 2004. And when I arrived to my ship, the USS Theodore Roosevelt in Norfolk, Virginia, I was faced with an LPO, lead petty officer. You know, he was the embodiment of everything we see now, you know, in the mass media. You know, someone who has consolidated fascist ideology, who allows rampant racism to go unchecked in the shop. Because of where I'm coming from, you know, I'm, I'm born and raised in Atlanta, Georgia, post the civil rights era. You know, my mother, a graduate of Clark Atlanta University at the time, Clark College, she comes out of that civil rights era. My mother was not an activist in that way, but she was someone who was deeply touched and deeply moved and deeply transformed through that era, like so many of her colleagues. Mm. You know, we were Dr. King's kids growing up in the 1980s of Atlanta, Georgia. So the notion that some that I would not speak up when Dr. King is referred to as a coon openly in the shop, that when you have someone who will openly give Nazi salutes in the shop, was an obligation for me to speak out. And in so doing, I made myself a target early on. I was almost driven out of the Navy. Jonathan, what goes through your head on Memorial Day 2022? Bring the troops home. Bring the troops home. Bring them back alive. That's a song from that era. Bring them back alive. Bring the troops home. End all imperialist wars of aggression. Bring the troops home. End the occupations. In the occupations, get the bases out of Germany, get the bases out of Japan, reinvest domestically within the United States in our domestic priorities, rebuild the infrastructure in the wasted cities of the United States, rebuild the abandoned working class of the United States from 
from Appalachia, West Virginia, to Anacostia, Washington, D.C. Bring the troops home. Bring them back alive. End all imperialist wars of aggression. Jonathan, there's a triumph in your story. I wonder, have you paid a price for your dissent? If someone was judging me from a careerist standpoint, meaning in terms of you know status in a society, I certainly haven't achieved any of that. But if you're judging me from the standpoint of humanity, I would say that I've gained quite a bit. At the end of the day, my dignity and my self-respect is intact. I might be paraphrasing Winston Churchill, but he, he talked about this notion of uh, there's nothing, nothing sweeter, nothing better than having been shot at and missed. You know? <laughs> That's how I feel. You know, been shot at, missed, and I'm still here and I'm still pressing, ever onward. I hear it in your voice. Things worked out wonderfully for Jonathan Wesley Hutto. More power to you. Thank you so much. I appreciate you. Joy Damiani, next, nowadays produces a podcast of words and music called What the Folk. The mindset here is formed by resistance to everything the Army wanted to teach Damiani as a public affairs specialist. I was in the Army from 2002 to 2008. I was in basic training during the time when the rest of the nation was experiencing like the sort of propaganda ramp up to the war in Iraq. So when I found myself in public affairs, looking at what was happening and seeing it as a show, a very like non-managed or poorly managed invasion, but yet being told to write it and peddle it as we've liberated Iraq and now we're reconstructing Iraq and we're helping to plant democracy and improve security and do all of this infrastructure work. And we were only telling the nice things that we were ostensibly doing and just completely obfuscating the horrific things that we were doing. And and also part of our job was to train soldiers to talk to the actual media, to train our fellow soldiers to not tell the truth, and then to keep the media away from anybody who hadn't been trained. There was a whole lot of deception on a whole lot of levels, and we were, you know, given awards for that kind of thing. And it was called journalism. Mm. And by the time I actually got to Iraq in 2005 that became extremely apparent. You know, I looked around and I was like, nobody is better off with us here. Objectively speaking, they're not better off. Mm. The streets are filled with sewage. The children are playing in concertina wire with military vehicles rolling down the streets. All of the professional classes fled. You know, there's no real police and security forces because we're paying basically anybody who's willing to join us to be in these security forces, we're training them on weapons, we're giving them weapons, and then predictably, a lot of them are leaving (laughs) and going back to their families to defend their land because that's all they can do at this point. So by the time I got there, I realized we were the bad guys. I didn't really know what to do about it. I just kind of got more and more disgruntled and angry. And then I realized how poorly the military was willing to treat us, the soldiers. And I was like, well... If they're willing to treat us like trash, Mm. and we're the good guys, and we're the heroes, what is really happening to everybody else? It looks like it's just violence and death and destruction and like grabbing power and resources from people who were managing fine before all these foreign interventions started. So that's why when I got out of the army, I decided to study the Middle East instead of going to school for journalism. We're hearing the political education of Joy Damiani as provided (laughs) by the United States Army in Iraq. 
I want to be able to use my voice like other veterans before me. And we all inspire each other and encourage each other and remind each other that we're not crazy. Mm. You know, when you're in the military and somebody is telling you that something is real when you can see that it isn't real, or when somebody who is completely idiotic is just promoted and promoted and promoted because they follow orders and they do what they're told. And then you meet the generals and the generals need you, the E-4 enlisted specialist, to make their words sound right. Mm. The thing that keeps me sane is being in community with other veterans who also know that. George Damiani, thank you. You've taught us a lot. Thank you so much, Chris. Matthew Ho served as a Marine officer in Iraq, also in the State Department, writing the Iraq Weekly Status Report that circulated widely. He seemed to know all along that his report was a stack of official lies. You build lies on top of lies. You make excuses for yourself. You try and tell yourself that what you are doing is separate from the entire event. But so by the time I get to Iraq in 2004, in April 2004, and you've seen the first Battle of Fallujah, we've seen what's happened with Abu Ghraib, we've seen the uprisings in Najaf, we, we've seen, you know, all these things that tell us the war's not going well, as well as at this point, we know there are no weapons of mass destruction and everything else. So what I'm saying to myself at that point is, well, hey, I can do some good. And that's the first lie I tell myself, because the reality is, is that when you take part in something as immoral as war, you know, your your own moral agency is going to be overcome and more likely used for the purposes of, you know, those immoral purposes of war. Let me ask you, Matthew, looking forward, you're an articulate fellow and a young man still, and yet most of your public career has been invested in, as you say, lies. What do you do for an encore? How, what's, what's the path of wisdom coming out of this pretty miserable experience? This is the crux of healing from moral injury, and it's tough, and people live with this their entire lives, and there's no clear pill. It's accepting what occurred in the past, accepting what you did, being accountable for it, and living a better life. Come to the hardest part. Matthew Ho, you write that this moral injury has everything to do with the incredible suicide rate among veterans of Iraq and Afghanistan. What do you know about the men facing this ultimate choice. It's an escape from the stress. And I can tell you, I suffer from PTSD. I suffer from traumatic brain injury. I have uh, chronic, daily, debilitating migraines that are just, uh, I wasn't able to work for five years because of them. Those things are nothing compared to the moral injury. The moral injury is what one, made me want to kill myself. The psychological, emotional, spiritual distress is so painful. I mean, it is as if the foundations of who you are have been ripped away. But this gets back to what we were talking about before, about this noble lie. It's very difficult for the Veterans Administration, for the Department of Defense, for others to work on this issue of moral injury because the implication is that we did something wrong, that there is something immoral about the wars the United States were waging. What are the memories that come back to you on this day of remembering service? Well, uh, there's so many. You know, I mean, I think that's what, what for a lot of us, uh, there's but so a, a many. Face. There's a face that wants to. Yeah, I mean, as we talk about it. this, I think about Danny LaBella, who was my uh, radio operator in Iraq. So I was very close with him, of course. You know, your radio operator, he's always there next to you and you get to know him. He was a kid from uh, New York City. And um, yeah, he put a shotgun in his mouth and killed himself Lord of mercy. seven months after we got home. And uh, I think I think more about his parents. 
you're at these funerals and both his mom and his stepmom, the pain that was in their face, you never forget that, you never shake that, and nothing can undo that. And so this gets back then to, okay, what's your purpose going to be? What are you going to do about it? Matthew Ho, thank you. You've given us an awful lot of yourself. Thank you, Chris. I appreciate it. Gil Barndoller was an infantry officer in the Marine Corps from 2009 to 2016. He is now a research fellow at Catholic University, writing a book on conscription and the volunteer military. His written piece on war service began, I had a good war in Afghanistan, meaning that he got home with all his limbs and all his men. I asked him what he had learned out there. I think fundamentally I learned a a painful lesson about American hubris and and about the limits of American power, of military power, and I guess to a degree the limits of good intentions. The war in Afghanistan was, was moral and just at the outset. You know, this country was ultimately attacked at home on September 11th. But by the time I got to Afghanistan, you know, we'd been there for a decade. And we were engaged in what was was ultimately a confused, muddled, sort of nation-building, terrorist-hunting kind of mess. And we ultimately didn't accomplish any of those things. We lost the plot long before I got there. Gil, you make something of a parable of a school, the Wazirabad school. My first deployment, I was a lieutenant in charge of a platoon of Marine Light Armored Reconnaissance, so 25 Marines with four vehicles, but we spent most of our time, especially early in that deployment, just patrolling on foot in a pretty quiet area along the, this river shelf in a part of the Hellman River called the Fish Hook because the river kind of bends distinctively. And that area was mm-hmm. quiet. We had no real direct encounters with the Taliban. We were doing kind of endless cups of tea with village elders and going down and patrolling and kind of doing the counterinsurgency doctrine mm-hmm. such as it was. In the course of that, we were trying to do at least some limited kind of civic projects, construction projects, trying to offer the locals, you know, tangible evidence of Americans and especially the goodwill and, and efforts of their government, uh, which was at extremely limited reach down there, not even police forces where we were. So we got the villagers to kind of agree. And after kind of months of meetings, said that the one thing they could really use would be a school. And so again, in a very kind of slapdash, put some kind of achievements or quote unquote wins on the board, we got some Afghan contractors to come down from a few hours north. They came down and built this very rough one-room schoolhouse up on the the desert shelf. And my platoon was tasked with providing security throughout roughly a week-long project. And so we sat there and and watched. My Marines watched and made jokes and smoked cigarettes, and not much happened. They completed the school. I Mm. took a patrol back to look at it the day after they left and realized the thing was, was dangerous. Held together with pieces of bamboo. The masonry was already starting to come apart. We can't ask the villagers to send their kids there. We were asking for, you know, Afghan children to be killed when this thing collapses. So I went down hat in hand to the village and door to door, essentially, and told these village elders and family leaders, that school we built for you, um, I'm sorry that you can't use it. It's actually dangerous. We're going to have to now, you know, knock it down to prevent it from being a danger to their children. And they looked me straight in the eye and, and said, oh, we never wanted a school. Why did you build that? In the best case scenario, we would have left this empty schoolhouse with no teachers, with no no school equipment with anything. That would have been our, our signal counterinsurgency achievement. Mm. Two, three weeks later, heard a huge boom not that far away, you know, raced up to a guard tower and grabbed a, a pair of thermal binoculars, looked out and saw, sure enough, there was an explosion right where that school had been. So oh. we go out the next day and sure enough, the Taliban or some Afghan element, whatever you want to call that, big T or little T Taliban, 
had blown up the school as a blow against the occupiers as we were clearly heading for the exit. So they had, <laughs> you oh, know, boy. they had saved us the trouble of knocking it down ourselves on the way out the door. To me, that kind of encapsulated the American misadventure in Afghanistan in a lot of ways. Gil Barndarla, thank you for your service and for your conversation. Thank you, Chris. Pleasure talking to you. Jason Dempsey is a West Pointer who spent 22 years in the Army as an infantry officer with a Ph.D. in political science from Columbia. He sees folly all through the last decades of U.S. warfare. I asked him where the military system went off course. Where we went wrong was an unquestioning faith and some projected fantasies about our military capabilities. Jason, take it to what you saw and did, especially in Afghanistan. It sounds, I mean, it's a nightmare, and it's infuriating for anybody to read now. You say it was all theater. Lies to the right of you, lies to the left of you, especially in the relationship with the Karzai government. Open corruption, building American bases, so-called, that, you know, would have fallen down if the Taliban hadn't burned them down. I mean, put us in Afghanistan with you. So what we had in Afghanistan was this giant bureaucratic mess, and there's probably no politer way to describe it. We would have folks out in the countryside not responsible for the bottom line, but given millions upon millions of dollars of taxpayer money, With no interest in listening to what the Afghans needed, we'd say, well, heck, let's just build a big building. It'll employ some people, and we can put it on our evaluation reports as we leave that we built them this headquarters building. These were buildings that would literally crumble if you scratched on them because the contracts had skimped so much and so many people had skimmed off the top that the concrete wasn't even stable. Forgive me, you could see this with the naked eye. It was obvious. If you wanted to see it, it was there. You write that veterans, people like you, must take the lead in voicing criticism. We have an institution now that, as you write, is applauded at sporting events but never questioned about what it does overseas. You know, the question I always have for folks is, hey, we say the military is great. We're so enamored with our equipment, with our weapon systems. Every general who is over there needs to be asked Uh, You had the most elite, advanced fighting force in the world, and you lost to people who never deployed a single helicopter, who barely had radios, and most of them were fighting with AK-47s and sneakers. How did you lose so badly? How did you fail to set up a military that could fight that ragtag force off? Every military leader you're going to see, the ones you see now and the ones you're going to see for the next decade, are there because they were all given ratings of an A to an A plus during their performance in Afghanistan. The question for all of them is, how did you get an A plus out of a failed effort? And what does that mean for your ability to think about how the institution can do better and be held accountable? How would you apply that logic to support for Ukraine Today, no boots on the ground, all kinds of advanced equipment. What's the caution? You know, we all were jumping on Vladimir Putin's miscalculations about the folks' willingness to fight and you know, him mi- completely misunderstanding the politics of Ukraine. And it was interesting to watch everybody doing that because, of course, we had made the exact same mistake in Afghanistan. We had believed, you know, they're going to welcome us with open arms. We can introduce our systems, everybody's going to be on board. And nobody's going to look at us like, hey, maybe we're not the best on earth. The difference, although interestingly, is we gave the Ukrainians weapons, but we allowed them to build their own army. And we're allowing their own political leaders to lead it. 
that never happened in Afghanistan. Jason Dempsey, thank you for your writing, your fighting, your gabbing with us. Thank you, Chris. It's been great to talk with you. Coming up, a certain common confidence in this American language. This is Open Source. With military veterans in dissent from the U.S. wars since 9-11. If our guest Paul Yingling had been a go-along guy in his army career, he might have been a general long ago. But then he wrote a critical document and published it in 2007 called A Failure of Generalship, indicting the broad officer establishment for the war in Iraq. The sting of his paper could outlive the memory of the war, but it killed Paul Yingling's career, and he went off instead to teach U.S. history in high school. I don't know if I would have made general. I do know that throughout my military service to fight and win America's wars, that is the charge that every army officer feels in his or her bones. It is after the support and defense of the Constitution, our principal charge from the American people. And every action that I take as an army officer has to be measured against that standard. I grew up in the Army as a true believer. I was a Gulf War veteran as a very young officer. I learned my trade from great fighters. And I saw 15 years later, my country losing a war. And let's use the words as they're intended to be used. America lost the war in Iraq. America lost the war in Afghanistan. I was an Army officer in a country losing a war. And I had an obligation to help my country win that war. You were a particular kind of officer, if I may say. You were an intellectual. You took the thinking about it very, very seriously. John Mearsheimer, the strategy guru, was your teacher at one point, and he said to you, Paul, you're smart, and the Army likes officers who are smart, but not too smart. Be careful. What did he mean? John himself was a West Point graduate with an incredibly insightful mind on strategy and policy, but also organizational culture. And I didn't know what he meant. How is it possible where the stakes are life and death to be too smart? Hmm. Only later did I come to see that in the senior ranks of the Army Officer Corps, it is not the profession that I imagined, where we all have this sacred obligation to fight and win America's wars. It's closer to a guild system Hmm. where officers advance through patronage relationships. And forming a relationship with a senior patron who will then bring you up through the ranks is the key to advancing as a flag officer. You should be congenial, efficient, and obedient. Mm. And congeniality, efficiency, and obedience are rewarded with general stars. The reader wonders why didn't the reality of failure in Iraq break through against that kind of guild rule? Chris, to this day, I can't answer that question. I can tell you that on September 5th, 2005, I was in a Bradley Cavalry fighting vehicle next to Corporal Jeffrey Williams. His mission was to drop me off where I was going to meet with the mayor and then to continue on his patrol. We were hit with an IED going in. On the way back, that cavalry fighting vehicle was hit again. Corporal Williams was killed. Mm. I met Corporal Williams' mother. I don't know how you can look into the eyes of a 43-year-old mother burying her 21-year-old son Mm. and worry about your promotion prospects. If I may presume, you remind me of a certain type of 
military men, and we've read about them a lot in Vietnam and elsewhere, but shall we say the brainy colonel, bit of a smart ass, natural <laughs> dissenter, John Paul Van made the role famous in Vietnam. But the question to me about Iraq is why didn't those dissenters like you get heard? The precursor elements of an insurgency, ignorant, angry, disaffected young men, a ready supply of weaponry and money, skillful demagogues, all the precursor elements for an insurgency were present in Iraq. John Noggle was an expert on Iraq, or an expert on insurgency, so we could see this coming. And so for four years, we both saw it. We tried to raise our concerns, but we tried to do it inside the system, and we failed. And I hold myself accountable for that failure, including complicity by silence for not speaking up sooner. To realize that a, an insurgency ahead would have required people to forget about being welcomed. Right. We've got a civil war aimed now at us. Yeah. Could that have been done? Could a smarter understanding of the situation and a better counterinsurgency strategy have worked? The debacle in Iraq was a failure of a number of institutions, certainly the U.S. military, failing to prepare for irregular warfare, failure to resource and train for irregular warfare, failure to tell the truth to the American people. The media also failed. Institution designed to evaluate claims by public officials and to test those claims against available evidence and to consider alternative viewpoints mm -hmm. failed in Iraq. And it failed to warn the American people adequately. There was, in my view, a certain institutional capture where senior officials, starting from Vice President Cheney all the way through military officials like General Tommy Franks, granted access to reporters who would peddle the Iraq line. And if you failed to peddle the Iraq line, you didn't get access to the troops, to the briefings, to the senior administration officials speaking on background and etc. And so for years, the American media allowed themselves to be captured and to become not watchdogs, but lapdogs. They didn't test and evaluate the claims of public officials. They repeated and amplified those claims. Perhaps the biggest difference between Vietnam and Iraq was... In Vietnam, the American people were deeply vested in the outcome of the war because the force fighting that war was conscripted. Uh, now, conscripted not from a representative sample of American society. Too many elites were excused from that war. But even so, the war came home to the American people because conscription made the war a vital question in the lives of ordinary Americans who may have not agreed with it. One example I, I like to cite is to go back to the Selective Service Act of 1940. Prior to the U.S. involvement in World War II, FDR and the Congress passed the Selective Service Act. It was due to be renewed in August of 1941. You know, with the Red Army fighting the Nazis at the gates of Moscow, mm. the Selective Service Act was renewed by a single vote in the House of Representatives. Wow. It was that close because, again, the ordinary American didn't necessarily know that this was their fight. And so congressmen had to go back to their districts and explain why fighting Germany 
was a vital national interest of the United States. And then they had to stand election to test their support for the war against public opinion. So they had to make the case when we arranged our military affairs in such a way that America could exempt itself from fighting and winning our wars. We may have produced efficient tactical units because they were manned by people who wanted to be there, but we introduced a significant strategic liability. Mm. Americans can simply choose to opt out of thinking about uh, concerning themselves with the war other mm. than a few token gestures, you know, the NFL halftime show, you know, Billy Lynn's long halftime walk. Paul, speak to the fate of dissenters, including yourself. I mean, what is this role like? What's the price of it? I walked away from three tours in Iraq without a scratch. My regiment lost 43 killed, seven times that number wounded in my second tour in Iraq. And I don't want the families of those soldiers who were killed and wounded to hear me belly aching about my career prospects. And so I've always been incredibly reluctant to talk about the issue of the price you pay for dissent. However, if you speak truth to power, if you disrupt the very large, powerful, profitable institution of the U.S. military or one like it, you will suffer. That institution is robust and enduring because it protects itself. And dissenters are a threat to those kinds of institutions. So your career will suffer, your finances will suffer, your family will suffer, and you will fail. That institution will retaliate in a way to marginalize you and protect its interests. And I want dissenters to hear that and believe it. It happened to Billy Mitchell. It happened to John Boyd. It happened to me. I promise you, it will happen to you. And yet you won't come away from the Purple Heart ceremony thinking, I didn't speak my truth. Yeah. The uh, final impetus in which I decided to write this article was a Purple Heart ceremony in 2006. I was representing my regiment, and these ceremonies are incredibly somber. The wounded soldiers are called up by the adjutant to receive their awards, uh, the Purple Heart. They are sometimes helped by a spouse or a buddy or a parent, and the adjutant reads their name, senior officer present presents their award, and then the representatives for every unit shake the soldiers' hands and thank them for their service. Mm. For the first time in my life, and I've been in the Army more than 20 years, when I walked forward to shake those soldiers' hands, I couldn't look a soldier in the eye. Because I knew that they faced the enemy in battle. They had shed their blood. They had done everything that had been asked for them and paid a terrible price for doing their duty. We senior officers didn't do our duty. We didn't visualize the conditions of irregular warfare, provide them with the training and the resources to prevail in those conditions. We didn't tell the truth to the American people about the security conditions in Iraq. At that point, I realized I am complicit and that night, I went home and began writing A Failure in Generalship. How would you observe Memorial Day with friends, with family, with your own memory? Uh, there were eight soldiers in Iraq. There but for the grace of God go I, starting with Specialist Rafael Nevea, who was on the same flight as I was into Iraq, served in the same area, was in a different truck at a different time, and he died in an ambush in 2003. Corporal Jeffrey Williams, September 5th, 2005, in that same Bradley Cavalry fighting vehicle. Major Doug LaBeouf, who was on a helicopter that I had ridden on a hundred times, 
And so I just take a long walk in the woods by myself and I stop periodically and I just say their name out loud and I remember them. And that's all you can do is remember them. Paul Jingling, it's an honor and pleasure to, to hear your story and to meet you on this program. Thank you so much for what you've written and what you've just said to us. Thank you, Chris. I appreciate your highlighting this important issue. Andrew Basevich, president of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, co-edited this collection, Paths of Dissent, whose contributors you've been hearing this hour. I asked Andrew himself if he'd heard voices like those in his own service time in Vietnam. Well, I think the truth is that no, I did not hear them in my own service time. I have to say for myself, I don't think I came to the sort of sober reflections that we're hearing in these interviews mm. until I was done serving. And even then I would say that there was a journey of sorts, a coming to terms with the military institution and the penchant for war that came to be blindingly obvious in the wake of the Cold War. When I was in uniform, the idea was prevent war, contain, deter. After the Cold War ended, the idea was to overthrow, to intervene, hmm. to use American military power to fix problems. And we put that proposition to the test over and over and over again, rarely with any meaningful success, and then, of course, really put it to the test after 9-11 with what became the long wars in hmm. Iraq and Afghanistan. So I find it very meaningful, sobering, to listen to these voices. What I heard with the veterans was credible, grown-up voices in recovery talking about an institution in deepest trouble, maybe its own worst enemy. Powerful, yes, but not working. Do we have any idea how to diagnose it and then how to treat it at this point? Well, that's a very pertinent question. So if you look at the post-9-11 period, we've participated in several wars, most of them small, two pretty big ones, Iraq and Afghanistan. It's impossible to make the case that either one of those ended successfully. Right. Only with difficulty do Americans ignore the consequences that the nation has suffered in terms of treasure wasted, of casualties sustained, of a loss of credibility of a loss of moral standing. One of the things that troubles me the most is how quickly we, the people, along with our political leadership, have chosen simply to move on. These dissenting veterans remind you what it's like to talk straight with one another. We don't hear an awful lot of that on important things. We hear it in a kind of ridiculous way about, say, critical race theory. Shall we argue that that is not a serious question? War and peace, even in Ukraine, is a vitally important thing that we don't know how to talk about anymore. We've got to relearn it somehow. We've lost the sense of how to speak plainly. Certainly the political establishment in Washington, how do we characterize political discourse in our time, in the post-Trump, current Biden presidency? Certainly it does nothing to illuminate the problems that the nation's confronting and, frankly, that the world is confronting. How is to characterize the conversation? It's geriatric, it's distracted, it's social media trivial, 
It's contrived. Yep, and in some fashion it's controlled. And dishonest. And in an odd sense, I think we've come to expect that. Hmm. We've come to expect that public discourse is polluted, not to be trusted. Uh, That's why I, I think these veterans, what they say is so powerful because of its honesty. Yeah. Andy Basevich, we'll all observe Memorial Day one way or the other. Where will you be? And what will you be trying to remember? You know, it's funny. When I was a kid growing up in Indiana, this would be the 1950s, Memorial Day was a day for picnics and barbecues. Mm. It was a day off. It was only when I was in the Army that I came to a deeper understanding. I was serving in Germany. This was... uh, in the early 1980s, and we had gotten a, uh, a new regimental commander. I was at Fulda in the 11th Armored Cavalry Regiment. And the new commander had served in the, the 11th Armored Cavalry in Vietnam. And we were rolling up on Memorial Day. I must admit that I was looking forward to taking a day off with my family. <laughs> and this new commander was absolutely adamant that we were going to have a memorial service on Memorial Day, and we were going to remember all the members of our regiment who had lost their lives Mm. in Vietnam. He was right. Mm. We had that ceremony. It was meaningful. And that was the moment when my own understanding of Memorial Day radically changed. And that's the understanding that has stuck with me ever since. We don't forget it, Andy. Thank you. Thank you for your voice and your history. My pleasure. Thanks also to Eric Edstrom, Jonathan Hutto, Joy Damiani, Matthew Ho, Gil Barndoller, Jason Dempsey, and Paul Yingling. Read their essays in Paths of Dissent, edited by Andrew Basevich and Daniel Scherson. You've just heard another installment of In Search of Monsters, our limited series collaboration with the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. Read more about the Quincy Institute at quincyinst.org. Our show this week was produced by Mary McGrath and Adam Coleman with engineering help from the WBUR production team. I'm Christopher Leiden. Join us next time. Join us every time for Open Source. Open Source is a proud member of Hub and Spoke, a nonprofit collective of smart, independent podcasts like Ministry of Ideas. Check out Zach Davis's recent series called Making Meaning, 23 episodes and counting, each one a gem of wisdom about the possibilities and poetics of meaning in the modern age. Hear it at ministryofideas.org or wherever you get your podcasts. And listen to the whole panoply of Hub & Spoke shows at hubspoke.org audio.org.